Okay, so uh, we are in a series called Center Set Church, and, and we haven't talked about the Center Set Church yet. We're in part three, and we haven't talked about, we haven't even brought this up yet. Um, that's because this is going to be the solution to the problem that I've been describing for the last few weeks. Uh, this is your first week. I just want to get you caught up with what we've been talking about. Uh, we've been talking about the blueprint for what a church ought to be. And if you read through the Bible and you get to the New Testament, there's a character named Jesus. He's like the main character. And he basically came to disrupt the whole thing, change the whole thing, like change the whole system, flip it upside down. And uh, he believed, and we believe because we follow him, we believe that this new system that Jesus has set for us would make the world a better place. But what we've been talking about is that we receive the blueprint, we receive the instructions, but we mess with it, and now it doesn't really resemble what it used to look like. So, um, I'm going to put up, I did this last week, so just like a recap, I'm going to put a description on the screen, and I'm not going to tell you what it's a description of. Okay, so let's take a look at it. Here we go. A sacred place where sacred men interpret sacred texts, which draw sacred lines to determine who is in and who is out. And if I were to take this to the public and say, hey, what do you think this, you know, the question mark right here, what is it supposed to be, what, what, what do you think I'm trying to describe here? A lot of people would say this, oh, of course, that's the church, right? And this is why I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I want to avoid going to the church because the church is so hypocritical. The church, they draw lines and there's people who are in, people who are out, depending on what your beliefs are. Or maybe sometimes you would think that like, oh, the church should be more accepting of people like this or that kind of group or this person or that community group. But a lot of times we draw lines right in front of them saying, you could visit us. You could be a part of our church, but you can't serve in certain capacities. You can't be a certain way, right? And so a lot of times when the world looks at this definition, we're like, they're like, oh, this must be the church. But what we've been talking about is that when Jesus described the church to us, none of the things I put on the screen right here resembles anything he said about what the church is supposed to be like. As a matter of fact, we've been talking about for the past few weeks that this is not a description of the church, but it's actually a description of something we like to call the temple model. The temple model. Basically, the Old Testament, they had a set of rules, and that turned into something, something that we like to call the temple model. A temple model usually has a sacred place, a holy ground, okay, that only a certain select few people could come into. And it's usually led by sacred men, and it's always men, Right? And we usually, they usually have the right, and they have the only people to have the right and the privilege to interpret the sacred text. And based on their understanding of the text, they draw lines to let everybody know who's in and who's out. That is a temple model. And last week, we looked at one of the people who grew up in the temple model. His name was the Apostle Paul. And he wrote a letter to a group of churches called the Churches in Galatia. We call that the letter or the book of Galatians. And he's basically warning everybody, I've been a part of the system for a very long time. Do not, and I repeat, do not, here's a warning, do not take something from the old temple model, and even a pinch, and drop it into the new model because it will ruin the entire thing. So what is the thing? What is the church supposed to look like? What is the Jesus model supposed to look like? Well, this is my working definition of what a church is. It's an open invitation from God to all humanity, not just a select group of sacred people, for all humanity to participate in a community. It's not a building. It's a community. Church is a community that is based on the single command to love others. 
In the Old Testament, in the old model, there's a lot of rules. There's 600 plus rules in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I've come here to fulfill all of them. The only command that you need to be worried about, the only thing you should be concerned about is to love others in the way that I have loved you. So Jesus, he spent his, his life trying to shut down the old system and restart a new one, and he even died for it. He died for you. Right? And so in doing so, Jesus was able, and he used different words. He didn't use the word temple model. He used the word like old covenant and new covenant. And as Jesus was starting at the new covenant, he was expelling the old model, the old covenant. So Jesus, oh, next slide, here we go. If Jesus expelled the temple model, how did it return? How did it come back? Because if I were to, like I said, if I were to take the definition of the temple model to the public, they would say, oh, that sounds like the church to me. Right? So why is the church, how did the church become so unnecessarily unattractive? Right? And how do we fix it? And how did it end up being the way it is right now? If Jesus, 2,000 years ago, started something pure and something excellent, and today it doesn't look like it, how did it end up being the way it is today? So today, for the next few minutes, we're going to do a quick overview history lesson. By the way, there was a lot more slides but today is my wife's birthday. And she told me to cut out at least 10 slides, and we did that last night. So this would have been an hour sermon, but now it's only like 55 minutes. No, just kidding. It's going to be about 40, 30, 30 minutes, I promise you, 30 to 35 minutes. So you can thank her later when, you know, because I realize daylight savings, we get hungry earlier, right? Yeah. Not you? Okay, well, I might get hungry. So for my sake and your sake, we're going to try to keep this short. So I might go through this really fast. But if I do, feel free, it's all recorded. You could rewind, you could go on YouTube and you could watch it later on your own if you are interested in this information. None of this stuff is meant to me, none of this is meant to be um, like full detail. It's, it's like an overview, it's a nutshell of, of what happened in history. So the church started in AD 33. This is what we think it started because we think that it was around AD 30, AD 33, somewhere around there, right? And the church got off to an extraordinary start. It was amazing. As a matter of fact, you know, you read through the Bible, you read about the first century church, and you're like, yeah, but the Bible is talking about itself, so it's like not fair. You know, like I, I'm sure the people who wrote the scriptures had a bias. Sure, okay. So if you look at pagan like sources, like people who are not part of the church, and if you read about what they said about the first century, first century, second century, third century church, they would say things like this. They would say things like, you know, these people who call themselves the way or the disciples of Jesus, or eventually they're called Christians. You know, you know what they did, which is so weird to us, is that they would go up and down the streets looking for abandoned babies, which was common in the Roman Empire. If their baby had an ailment, they would toss them onto the streets and wait for the baby to die. Or because male, was more, male babies were more valuable than female babies, if they had a little girl and they're like, we wish we had a boy, they would toss the baby into the street. The first, second, third century Christians walked up and down the streets, picking up these babies, nursing them back to health, and eventually, and they would teach them the teachings of Jesus. And by the time they're old enough to get married, they would raise children, and, and the world would become a better place because of that. And the pagans, like the people who are outside the church, would write about this, like, these Christians, they're crazy. They think there's value in these babies when we obviously know that they don't have any value. Another uh, thing that they said about the church in the first three centuries is that, you know, these Christians, 
They love to take care of the poor. And they don't just take care of their own poor. They're not, they're not just looking for other Christians who are poor and care for them. They're also taking care of the poor that are not part of their clan. They take care of these babies and not only that, right, they take care of the poor and these are not people who are Christians. They're people who disagree with them. Some of them even who end up being poor after a war who fought against the Christians. Like these people, like these Christians, they care about people. They don't really care whether if they're on their side or not. Another thing that's interesting about these Christians is that they are committed to making things work relationally. Like, if you go into a church in the first century, which was usually like in a small house, they would see people who were slaves, but also hanging out with people who were masters, slaveholders. They would hang out with people who are Jews and people who are Gentiles. Like, usually these people don't mix, but in the church, they've committed themselves to getting along. Like, that is so interesting, these Christians, right? Like, these people are writing these things down in history saying, there are some crazy people here that, that try to get along with people who don't look like them. That was the church in the first century. Another thing, and this is probably the big one, okay, is, is usually when a movement like this starts, the Roman Empire uses the threat of death. If you keep doing this, if you keep gathering, we'll kill you. These Christians, they don't seem to be afraid of dying. Like they keep talking about how they worship and follow a God, the God, who was killed but rose again on the third day. These people are not afraid of dying. This is the reputation of the first century church. And as you can tell, in the first century church, because they were so fearless, a lot of groups, a lot of people of power, they were threatened by the church. And so, following the AD 33, there was a persecution of the church. Usually, Originally, there were two groups of people who would persecute the church. There were the Jews, because Christianity was an offset of Judaism, and so they were like, you know, like, oh, we need to deal with that. But then there were also the Roman Empire. They were the world power at the time, and they were both threatened by the Christian, by the church, and so they would attack them. In the book of, in the, in the book of Acts, you'll see the, on the first half, you'll see the Jews always attacking the church, and the church always prevailing. Eventually, they said, you know what? If you're going to be your own thing, then be your own thing. You're not allowed to come into our temple anymore. And so the Christians were like, we're okay with that because we don't believe in the Roman, we don't believe in the temple model. We don't think that, that we, need to be, go to, we need to go to a sacred place to worship God. We think we can worship God wherever we are. But then in AD 70, the Jewish temple was destroyed. The Romans came in and destroyed their temple. And now the Jews, almost overnight, they lost all their power. They lost their sacred place. And the Romans, uh, so by General Titus, he, they came in and destroyed, and they burned the whole place down, and all the gold melted in between the cracks of the bricks, so they had to take the bricks off one by one and scrape all the gold. You know, So the whole temple was destroyed. Jews lost their powers. The Romans gained even more power. And through all of that, the Christians, they kept on growing. They said, hey, we've been scattered before, right? We never had a temple, it doesn't really affect us because wherever we are, we believe that God is with us, right there with us. And so as the, Rome, as the Jewish power started to dwindle and the Roman power kept on growing, the church was somewhere in the middle of all that. Then, we're gonna skip a few hundred years, around 300 to 312, there's a guy named Maxentius who went to war with a guy named Constantine. And whoever won this battle, it's called the, the Battle of Milvin, Milvin Bridge of the Mil historians, anybody? Okay, there's a war that happened and whoever won this war would become the new emperor. 
And Constantine was like, oh man, I'm so scared. What am I supposed to do, right? But on the way there, he had this vision. He looked up and he saw the sun. And above the sun, he saw a cross. And on the cross, he saw an inscription in his mind or a vision, I don't know. And on that inscription, the inscription said, in this sign, thou shalt conquer. It was in Latin, it was in English, but that's what it said. And he took that as a sign from God saying, you know the the God that we've been persecuting this whole time, the Christian God? Well, I think he just spoke to me. And what we're gonna do is, we're gonna take the sign of the cross, we're gonna paint it on all our shields. We're gonna paint it all over the, all the things that we have, and we're gonna go to war against Maxentius, and guess what, he won. And because he won, he started considering, like, maybe Christianity is the way to go. Maybe we've been persecuting the wrong religion. So the very next year, in 313, he legalized Christianity. And he didn't just legalize Christianity. What he did was he started pouring money into Christianity. He started pouring money into the church. So up until now, all the churches were small home churches. Each church had about, like, maybe 20 people at most. All of a sudden, almost, like, over the next few hundred years, these huge monuments started coming up. We had like cathedrals made with amazing art on the walls. All of a sudden they had money and they had power. They increased the power that the clergy had. As a matter of fact, the way that the Caesar, Caesar uh, Constantine took a census was by baby baptism. How do you know who's in your empire? Well, by looking at how many babies were baptized. So baby baptism became an essential part of society. Christianity started to grow. Um, sometimes he would go to, um, Caesar would go to um, these, these, uh, these other priests that were there before them and say, you have to convert to Christianity because now you work for me. So there was a lot of forced conversions that took place. And he also said, if you're wondering how churches have like tax exemption today, it started back then. Caesar said, if you're a church, we, there's no tax you have to pay. And the rich people caught on to this. And they're like, wait a minute. The church doesn't have to pay taxes? Then I want to become a pastor. <laughs> I want to be a priest, but continue my crazy lifestyle. And so there's a lot of corruption that started happening in the church. There was, for the first time ever in history, there was benefits, economical benefits for being a Christian. So in AD, around this time, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to became, becoming an empowered majority. The church became a part of the empire. Before they were persecuted by the empire, now they were part of it. They were being funded, they were being funded by the empire. And as the clergy started growing in power, they wanted to do everything they could to hold on to that power. And almost like, you know, I just can't believe that this is happening. The church became the new temple, the new temple model. Because now we all of a sudden had new sacred spaces and we had new sacred men. We had these cathedrals and this was sacred. You can't touch it. Who's leading these sacred areas? These sacred people, and they're usually men. And I don't know if you know your religious history. I don't expect anybody to, only people like me would be interested in this stuff. In AD 325, that's a great day, yeah. Um, There's something that happened called the Arian Controversy. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. You're not gonna be testing on this. Arian Controversy. This is basically a theological divide. There's the two guys in this story. There's the guy named Arius, hence Arian Controversy, and another guy named Athanasius, okay? Arius, Athanasius, they both start with the letter A. 
And basically what happened is they were reading the Bible and they came to John 3.16, which some of you guys probably know by heart. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? In some translations, they use the word only begotten. Next slide. There we go, begotten son, begotten. And the question was, what does it mean for Jesus to be the only begotten son? The big question here was, was Jesus born God? Or was he born as a normal human being and on his baptism day, he became God, right? And so Arius said, oh, he became God later on in his life. Athanasius and everybody else in the church was saying, no, actually he was born, you know, if you read through Luke and Matthew, it's clear that he was born God, right? And so they had that divide right there. Now, Constantine seeing all this is like, wait a minute, up until now, Christianity was the reason why everybody was unified. But now there's a theological divide that's starting. We need to take care of this now, right? So Constantine said, this is what we're going to do. I'm not a theologian. I can't rule on this matter. So I'm going to invite all of these religious nerds, (laughs) like scholars, into this one place. And he had something called the the Nicene, uh, the, the, the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea, and they met for a long time, and then they said, okay, this is what we came up with, and they're like, no, go back and keep working on it. They kept on working on it, and then one day, Constantine decided to have a meeting with one of the two gentlemen that was in this story, you know, Arius or Athanasius. Athanasius got to Caesar first, so he listened to Athanasius, and he gave a really convincing argument, which is, you know what, we've always believed this. What he's teaching, what Arius is teaching is new. So don't you think that what we believe is like what majority of people, like if you're looking for unity in your empire, then you probably want to go with what we've always taught. And he's like, well, that's a good point. So Caesar stood before everybody and he gave an edict. He's like, guys, ladies and gentlemen, this is what we're going to believe as an empire, right? At the end of that speech, this is what he said. He said, and I hereby make a public order, hear ye, hear ye, that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed of Arius, if you believe in anything that Arius believes in, if you have any writings of Arius, and we find it, we find out that you still have in your position, and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. It is illegal to believe something outside of what we said is true. For the very first time in Roman Empire Christianity, holding the wrong belief is now a crime. It's illegal to believe the wrong thing, okay? And because of this, for the first time, Christianity became creedal. In the Council of Nicaea, at the end when, the, you know, when they gave the speech, like, okay, from this day on, if you believe in the things of Arius, you know, then uh, you're dead, right? So the council came up with a statement, and they call this the Nicene Creed. Now, I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's really small because the whole point of this is not so you can read it, but, the, but here. This is what the Nicene Creed is, right? And it starts with the word believe. We believe because this is what it's all about, making sure you believe the right things. We believe, right? And when you get to the blue part right here, I don't know if you guys can see it. This is the part about the begotten, the thing that they were dividing over, right? And in one and we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. So it's like, it goes on and on and on, right? You don't have to know this stuff, okay? But what I do want you guys to notice is that this statement is missing something crucial to Christianity. Do you guys know what it is? 
there's not a single mention of love. Because when Christianity became creedal, next slide, what, what, what this means, and by the way, the Nicene Creed is very good. And if you want to know if people have the right beliefs or not, you want to go to the creeds, okay? Because these are things that the entire church worldwide have agreed on. So it's, it's important. I'm not trying to put, put it down. I, what I am uh, putting down in a way is the overemphasis on belief, okay? Because when Christianity became creedal, what they're really saying is this. Beliefs is greater than love. Being correct is more important than acceptance. Truth is more important than grace. Now, I'm not saying that truth isn't important at all, but what I am saying is love is the most important thing and truth should always follow it, not the other way around. Because from this stem the understanding that as long as we hold the correct beliefs, we could be as unloving as, as we want, but as long as we have the right beliefs, then we're in. If there's a line that somebody drew, it's not, you, you don't get to come on the inside because you're loving. You get to come inside because you held to the right beliefs. Now, why, why, how did this end up this way? Well, because the creeds were usually signed off by the emperor. And if the emperor saw something in the creeds that he didn't like, he didn't sign it. And for the sake of unity, these church leaders had to craft the words in a way that would be acceptable to the, to, to the emperor. And the emperor, his number one concern was unity, making sure that people who are in are the people who agree with us. And one of the things that the emperor did was that he had a crazy lifestyle. And if there's anything in there that had talked about behavior, he would cross it off immediately. And so these are the people who had the power to draw lines, tell people who's in and who's out. So the church became the new temple. Men who claimed to be Jesus' representatives drew lines based on beliefs. There were people who held slightly off beliefs, but were so loving that they represented Jesus really, really well. Those people were put to death. And there were people who were not representing Jesus well, but they had the right beliefs and they were in. How did they do this? If you held the wrong beliefs, they withheld baptism, baby baptism. They withheld communion. They withheld entry into a certain community. They excommunicated people who didn't believe the same things that they believed in. They gave them the scarlet letter saying, you, like everybody, if you see this person, shun that person because they don't hold to their right beliefs. They don't believe the same things that we believe in. And the people who had power were people like popes, archbishops, bishops, priests. These are the people who had all the, all the power. And they also had the power to demand money from people Right? If you want to confess your sins to us, then you have to pay us. If you want to be forgiven by God, you have to pay us. They were able to demand money. They were able to demand obedience and respect. And anybody who objected to them, they said, oh, that's too bad because people like you, right in front of you, that's where we draw the line. So if you're willing to comply to what we teach, then you can step into our church, into our community. And to them, that was, that was their ultimate goal is, we wanna be part of the community because if we're not in the church, we're on bad terms with the emperor. And through this, they were able to justify greed, segregation, and even war. As a matter of fact, in 1050, AD 1050 to 1300, the church launched the Crusades to rid the holy land of infidels. They said, you know what? That sacred land, which is 
temple talk, right? That sacred land in Jerusalem belongs to us, the church, because that's where Jesus was crucified. We need to take it back. But not many people volunteered. They were like, oh, we're not, we're not gonna fight that war. We don't know how to fight. And then Pope Urban II, the Pope at that time, stood in front of everybody and said, I declare this day that all people who participate in this holy war, all their sins will be forgiven. Now remember, there are people who are on outside the line because they believed in the wrong things. They're thinking, wait a minute, they're telling us that if we fight in this war, then we'll be on the inside, on the other side of this line. Let's go fight this war. So they were able to recruit a lot of people for, for this holy war. And on the way to Jerusalem, they had to fight other people along the way. And they saw artifacts. They saw treasure. They saw women. And they said, you know what? If Pope Urban II said that all sins will be forgiven, let's take as much stuff as we can now. Let's take their artifacts. Let's take their treasures. Let's take their women. Let's do all that because it's all going to be forgiven at the end of the day, right? And so they pillaged every place along the way, all the way to Jerusalem, and they won the Holy Land back. Now, they lost it a lot, not that long after that, but you know, they got it back that day. And they started killing Jews. Why? Because at that point, they believed, wait a minute, Jews, these are the people who crucified our Lord. We need to teach them that you can't do that. And so they started killing Jews, not just in Jerusalem, but around the world. This became the height of the Christian version of anti-Semitism. By the way, and I wasn't going to say this, actually, this is one of the things that my wife told me not to say, but I'm going to say it anyways. And maybe you could tell me if, if she had it right or not. Okay, but here, okay. Do you guys ever wonder why we eat ham on Easter? Yeah. It's, it comes from this era when they said, we want to make sure the Jews stay away from our Easter, so we're going to start serving meat that is unclean to their culture. This is why we have ham on Easter, by the way. I just ruined Easter. I shouldn't, you're right, I shouldn't have said that. Okay. <laughs> okay, but this is the highest level of anti-Semitism. Anyways, enjoy your ham. I, I don't think that's the point. Okay. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, but this is what we want you to know, okay, is that whenever, oh, next slide, whenever the church led with power instead of love, we always lost. We might have won a war, you know, but we always lost the reputation of Jesus. This is not what Jesus had in mind. Right? Like, and what's even worse, okay, is that unfortunately this behavior, it continued on for centuries. It wasn't like a one-time deal. I mean, when we think about church history, you know, we like to think like, oh yeah, we, we had, you know, the church has always been good. No, we have a lot of skeletons in our closet, folks, right? And this continued for a long time. And then the church version of the temple model became normalized. The church all of a sudden had sacred men, sacred land, sacred beliefs. Now, we weren't all like that. There were always exceptions to this. There was the monastic movement, a bunch of monks who would like meet together and say, no, this isn't how it is. We choose to disaffiliate ourselves from the big church system, right? They would do that, you know, because we believe that this is the right thing to do. And as they continued to do that, kept on rebelling against the big power that was the church at the time. Eventually, a man rose up. His name was Martin Luther. In 1517, he led something called the Reformation. The Reformation, which we, uh, was on October 31st, right? <laughs> yeah. The Reformation. Basically, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther took a pile of paper, 
was it paper? I'm assuming it was paper. And he nailed 95 things that he's had, he had an issue with the church onto the door of a church in Germany. And he said, here are the things that I believe that you guys are wrong about. Now, the reason it's called Reformation is because Martin Luther wanted to reform the church. He wanted to change. He didn't want to destroy the church. He just wanted to reform it. But the people in the church looked at Martin Luther and said, no, no, they're protesting. This is why we're called Protestants. Because you're like, whoa, look at those. Like, we're just trying to reform. Like, no, you're, you're trying to protest. Anyways. Okay, and basically his argument was this. The church is wrong because what they're doing is not biblical. Right? Indulgences, not in the Bible. Power of the priest, not in the Bible. Confession, you know, when you go into a little booth and you talk to somebody on the other side to get your sins forgiven, you have to talk to a person, not biblical. Tithe, yeah, it's in the Bible, but it's not the way that we understand the New Testament, not biblical. Salvation, the way that you teach salvation, that's unbiblical. Purgatory, not in the Bible. So he basically said, here are the things that you got wrong, church, and he always pointed back to the Bible over and over and over again saying, this is where you got things wrong. And by doing that, he came up with a phrase called sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Now, it sounds good when you say like, oh yeah, the Bible, whatever the Bible says, whatever the Bible says, whatever the Bible says. But what Martin Luther was really doing was he was taking the power of the holy, sacred people and placing all that power into the Bible. The Bible basically took the place of a sacred man. Here's a quote from Martin Luther. This is what he said about this. He said, a simple layman, like normal people, armed, and yes, when he used the word armed here, he was making a reference to weapons. He says, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the highest pope without it. Like, do you guys know how much power you have if you understand the Bible? That's what he's saying here. So the Bible took the place of a sacred man, and now the Bible is being weaponized against other people. As a matter of fact, when this happened, almost immediately, maybe like, okay, I don't know, immediately sound like in a year, but okay, over the next few decades, the church splintered into a thousand, over a thousand denominations, each denomination claiming that they were right and everybody else was wrong. And they always justified it using the Bible. So, in this time of history, if somebody were to say, so, where is Jesus in all this? You know, this movement that Jesus started that was all about love. What happened to it? I wouldn't be surprised if scholars would look at this or historians would look at this and say, this was the era in which love lost. We just ended up with the new temple, ver- temple model with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top of it. So, in your experience of church, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever experienced like the Bible being weaponized against you? Have you ever been in a situation where you felt outside of a community because your beliefs weren't quite lined up with everybody else's? That stuff is baked right into Christianity. In the last 2,000 years, this became the norm. It's not something that we cooked up in the last 10 years or something. Like, oh my gosh, all of a sudden the church is acting. No, no, no. It's been a part of church for a long time. Now, after hearing this, you're kind of like, I don't like the church anymore. (laughs) That's not the point of this, guys. Okay, there's hope in the end of this message. Okay. But eventually this became normalized. 
And at this point, I just want to pause and say, the next thing I'm going to say is totally made up. I'm making this up in my own brain. Okay, the next part. Because I have to imagine, what is Jesus thinking about all this? Right? I, I like to imagine like Jesus and Paul are in heaven. They're having a conversation. And they're like, hey, Paul. Like, hey, Jesus. Hey, what's, how's it going? Secret handshake. You know, right? Whatever. Okay. And, and, and they're like, have you seen what's been going on with the church for the past 1,500 years? Like, yeah, it's kind of messed up. Like, yeah, it is messed up. What, what's going on? Yeah, like, how did it happen? And Jesus is like, I don't know, Paul. Did you do your job? And Paul's like, Jesus, I wrote everything down. I, it's in the Bible now. Like, did, have you read what I wrote in Galatians? Like, look what I wrote in Galatians. I think I couldn't be any clearer than this. In Galatians, I wrote this. The only thing that counts is faith expressed itself through love. Like, I don't think it could, I could be any clearer than that. And Jesus is like, yeah, that is pretty clear. You want to know what I said about this? It's like, yeah, what did you say, Jesus? Like, well, this is what I said. It's like, a new command I give you, love one another. Can't be any clearer than that. But just in case... I went a little further. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. I repeated myself. But in case they missed it, this is what I said. By this, everyone would know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I said it three times in one verse, or yeah, two verses. Like, and not only that, you know when I said this? I said this right after I washed my disciples' stinking feet, and I told everybody to do likewise. So there's no way anybody missed this, right? And they're like, right then how did this happen to the church? The question that they were probably asking, the question I want to ask is, how did this happen? How did the church end up being the way it is today? And it's easy for us to look at history and say, oh, those people. <sighs> look at the Pope, you know, oh, or look at, you know, look at, um, you know, Constantine. Oh, I can't believe what he did, right? Oh, I can't believe that what, what Martin Luther did. I know he, had, he, he meant well, but then, oh, you know, now people are just, Using the Bible as weapons, so it gets on my nerves, right? But I've been thinking about this for a long time. And this is what I realized, is that there is a bit of temple model in all of us, in you, in me. And you're like, no, I don't. It's like, no, yes, you do. I'll give you a few examples. Temple model thinking. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you can get without actually sinning? If you have, that's temple model thinking. We claim that we're trying to get closer to God, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to get close to sin without really taking off God, right? And we must think that God is very stupid because he's thinking like, oh, Cots, you're about to, oh, wait, instead of using that bad word, you just changed the last letter to something else. So that's not cursing. Oh, no, we're, we're, we're good. We're good. You, we think, you, like, who do we think we are? You think we're actually fooling God? Did you sin, Cots? Well, no, but yeah, but technically I didn't because I did it this way instead of that way. Like, oh, okay, my bad. God's like, okay, yeah, yeah. I've heard, you know, when I used to do youth ministry, people would come up to me and say, hey, Cots, uh, is, is uh, X, Y, or Z, are the, is this a sin? The question itself begs me to say, yes, that is the temple model thinking. How about this? Try this one on for size. Have you felt more guilt about missing church than how you treated someone at work or at home? Does your attendance and participation in the church outweigh how you treated people during the week? If so, temple model thinking because this tells me that you care more about where you stand with God than where you stand with other people. 
Whereas in the past few weeks we've been talking about how you treat other people is an indication of how you stand with God. Here's another one. Have you tried to get someone to pray a specific prayer because you feared for their eternal destiny? A carefully well-crafted prayer does not save anybody. Yeah. No, 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 it's okay. We're good, we're good. (laughs) Yeah, that's good, thank you. Right, it doesn't save anybody. Your desire to grow closer to Jesus, that is what puts you in his kingdom. You could pray the right prayer, and you could try to get somebody to pray that same prayer, but if you're not wanting to get closer to Jesus, if you're not interested in who Jesus is, if you're not fascinated by who Jesus is, then then it doesn't matter what kind of prayer you pray. (laughs) But you think certain rituals is what saves you? In the same breath, I just want to say that um, if you think your goal is heaven, temple model thinking, a sacred place, that's temple model thinking. Your goal is Jesus, not going to heaven. How about this one? Do you believe someone else's prayers are more effective than your own? We need to have a sacred person in my life that would pray on my behalf because I know God listens to that person more than he listens to mine. Now, I'm not saying we can't pray for other people. As a matter of fact, there's a group of people at our church who who've committed to pray for you guys and for anything that you guys have you know, prayer requests for. But if you think that your prayer is less effective than those people who are praying for you, temple model thinking. Or if you feel like you have to pray in a certain way in order for God to pay attention to you. Like if I use word thou and thee, if you use King James English you know, prayers, oh, thank you for this day. I don't know, I don't know. Temple model thinking. Or if you like to utter Jesus' name after every word in a prayer, dear Jesus, thank you, Jesus, for this day, Jesus, and uh, Jesus, want to thank you, Jesus. For some reason, if you think you could just say his name over and over again, he'll listen to you more. No. Jesus actually said something about that, right? He, says, he said pagans do that because they have, to clamor, they have to work so hard to get their God's attention. He says, no, not with me. I listen to you all the time. Temple model thinking. How about another one? After morally failing with another person, so it could be like an affair, were you more concerned about what God would do to you than how the other person is doing? Temple model thinking. At the core of temple model thinking, it's actually a religious version of selfishness, selfish, selfish tendencies, basically. Whatever happens, I just need to know that I'm okay with you. So when you do something wrong with somebody else, you're more concerned about yourself. How do I stand with God? You don't really care about the other person. Here's another one. Do you think there's a ritual that removes your responsibility to, recon- uh, to reconcile with the, the people you hurt? If you do something wrong to somebody and you say, Lord, I want to confess, I'm so sorry, and you hear God say, you're forgiven, child. You think, cool, I'm going to go on with my day. Just because you're okay with God doesn't mean that you don't have to worry about making things right with the person you just wronged. If you think that all you need is God's forgiveness, temple model thinking. I've heard people say, if I'm good with God, that's all that matters. Temple model thinking. That was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus says, if you bring an offering to the altar, but you have something going on with the person that you wronged, Leave your offering at the door and make amends with that person, then come back. Jesus says, I can wait, but this, 
Horizontal relationship can't. Here's another one. You're like, stop. Keep going. (laughs) Do other people's sins elicit a sense of moral superiority in you? You feel better about yourself when somebody that's on the other side of the line messes up. If you're a Republican, you're like, when I see Democrats mess up, oh, I feel so good about myself. If you're a Democrat, when you see Republican mess up, you're like, oh, yes, I feel so much better. Whether if you're a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, Catholics, liberal, um, Baptist, Presbyterian, pro or anti-vaccine, uh, Buddhist, um, Muslim, Islam, uh, pagans, atheists, I don't care, okay? When you start seeing those people mess up, do you feel better about yourself? Jesus had something to say about this. He said that if a person comes to the altar and he, and he sees a tax collector and he says, Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that person who messed up with his life. Temple model thinking. The proper response of a Jesus follower when they see anybody mess up is compassion. A broken heart. This one's big with me. Next one. Do your beliefs or theology ever get in the way of love? You're like, no, never. (laughs) Me, all the time. Let's go on. (laughs) Next one. (laughs) Do you hold to beliefs that get in the way of seeing the actual person? When you meet a person, do you see their labels first? Or do you see the person first? Do you see their reputation first? Do you see their... Theological beliefs first? What what do you see first? Or do you see the image of God in them first? Now, I think I listed about nine right here, nine things. And you're like, okay, I'm glad we're done with the list. I have a confession to make here. The list I just presented to you is actually my list. When I sat down and I asked the Lord, what is it? Is there a little bit of temple in me this is what I feel like the Lord revealed to me. Cots, these are the things you wrestle with. Every day, I look at people and I see their th- theological beliefs and it gets in the way of me loving them. I feel a little joy inside of me when the people that I don't agree with mess up. A lot of times, I think that if I just ask God to forgive me, then I don't have to deal with the mess up that I did on the side. This is my list. It's not a comprehensive list, I'm sure. And I'm sure that if you were to ask God and the Holy Spirit to convict you with how much of a temple system you have inside of you, you'll probably have things I didn't put on the screen today. I realize I have a lot of temple left in me. And because of that, I crowd to Jesus and say, Lord, you need to save me from this. But the point is this. There's a bit of temple model in all of us. All of us. And when I think about, well, what's causing this? It's not just the emperor, it's not just the pope, it's like, it's all of us, right? What's causing this? There's an overemphasis on the vertical. Am I okay with you, God, now? Did I do enough for you, God? God, is this, is this clean enough for you? Maybe if I live my life like this, then you'll accept me more? Our conscience is bound to this idea that we need pr- approval from God. And you know what we learned? Our inability to prioritize others stem from the failure to embrace God's love. When Jesus died on the cross, that was his way of saying, we're good. I know you messed up, but we're good. 
You don't have to beg me for my favor anymore. We're good. Do you want proof of that? I died for you. And I think we all know this. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. But I think what we forget is that while he has died for me, he is also for me. He's cheering me on. He wants to be with me. I don't have to earn, like, I, can't, I don't have to be like, what else do I have to do to make sure you're not angry with me? He says, I'm the one that's desperate here. I'm the one that's trying to reach out to you and have a relationship with you. So all the things that you've done wrong against me, I've already forgiven that. Look at the cross. That's what I did for you. Now focus on loving the people around you. And I'm sure Paul, Paul the apostle, had the same thought when he wrote this in Romans chapter 12. He says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I've done so many things wrong against God, and every time God says, I have mercy on you, I'm gonna love you anyways. There's nothing you could do that could make me love you less. I'm gonna love you no matter what. No matter what you do, God has shown me love. So in view of that, this unconditional love from God, he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Give yourself to somebody else now. Make things right with that person now. Be a little uncomfortable being, by being generous towards somebody else. You don't have to do this for me anymore. Do it for the people around you. Because God has been merciful towards you, your job now is to be merciful towards the people around you, and it might hurt a little. That's why it's a sacrifice, right? And he says, this is going to be holy and pleasing to God. Up until now in the temple system, you had to kill anim sacrifice animals Right? And there's a psalm that even says, God is like, you know, these thousand hills, I own all the hills, and I, have all, I own all these, these are all my animals. What makes you think that I need another sacrifice from you? Right? Like, I don't need any more animals from you. Like, this whole sacrifice thing, according to the book of Hebrews, this sacrifice thing was more for you than it was for me. Like, I would say, I love you anyways. Like, have you ever been in a situation where, where um, you wrong somebody, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry I did this to you, and the other person's like, no, it's okay, it's okay. Like, let me at least buy you some pizza. No, you don't need to buy me pizza. Like, but I, I just, and the person's like, fine, buy me a pizza, and then we're, we're, we're good. This is what is happening. He's like, this sacrifice to God thing was for you and your conscience, not for me. I don't need death and blood and you know, sacrifices. This is so you can feel the love that I offer to you freely. And he said, but now, now that you understand how this whole thing works, he says, if you want to thank me for the mercy I've shown you, love the people around you. And when you do that, he said, that is pleasing to God. It's like, oh, God's like, yes, finally, you're doing what I wanted you to do for thousands of years. You're finally doing it. You're, you're pleasing me now. And he said, and this is your true and proper worship. This is how you show love to God, is by loving the people around you. If you want to say thank you to God, be a living sacrifice to the people around you. If you want to say, I love you so much, love the people around you. He said, this is what pleases God. Let me summarize this. God loves you sacrificially. Therefore, Paul is saying, demonstrate your love for God by sacrificially loving others. The temple system has come into the church and it's been like this for a long time, so long that it's been normalized. And I believe that we could reverse its effects if we learn to do just this. 
love God by loving the people around us sacrificially. And if we could get this right, I believe the church could become attractive again. No. Or not. (laughs) But I believe we can. If we could somehow unhitch ourselves from the temple model by loving people sacrificially, knowing that without a shadow of a doubt that God loves us no matter what, then we can have an attractive, healthy church. Amen? All right, let's pray.